0: So we're looking at 1 Kings chapter 22, and again, verses 1 to 28. For three years, Syria and Israel continued without war. But in the third year, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel. The king of Israel said to his servants, Do you know that Ramoth-Gilead belongs to us, and we keep quiet and do not take it out of the hand of the king of Syria? And he said to Jehoshaphat, Will you go up with me to battle at Ramoth-Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are. My people as your people, my horses as your horses. And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, Inquire first of the word of the Lord. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said to them, Shall I go to battle against Ramoth-Gilead, or shall I refrain? And they said, Go up, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not here another prophet of the Lord, of whom we may inquire? And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord. Micaiah, the son of Imlah, but I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say so. Then the king of Israel summoned an officer and said, Bring quickly Micaiah, the son of Imlah. Now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones, arrayed in their robes at the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria. And all the prophets were prophesying before them. And Zedekiah, the son of Chena, made for himself horns of iron and said, Thus says the Lord, With these you shall push the Syrians until they are destroyed. And all the prophets prophesied so and said, Go up to Ramoth-Gilead and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. And the messenger who went to summon Micaiah said to him, Behold, the words of the prophets with one accord are favorable to the king. Let your word be like the word of one of them and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, As the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. And when he had come to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth-Gilead to battle or shall we refrain? And he answered him, "'Go up and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king.' But the king said to him, "'How many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord?' And he said, "'I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains, as sheep that have no shepherd.' And the Lord said, "'These have no master. Let each return to his home in peace.' And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, "'Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil?' And Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, by what means? And he said, I will go out and he will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, you are to entice him and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of these your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. Then Zedekiah, the son of Chenah, came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, How did the spirit of the Lord go for me to speak to you? And Micaiah said, Behold, you shall see on that day when you go into an inner chamber to hide yourself. And the king of Israel said, Seize Micaiah and take him back to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, Thus says the king, Put this fellow in prison. Feed him meager rations of bread and water until I come in peace. And Micaiah said, if you return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, hear all you peoples. Well, psychologist uh, Carolina Flores said this, Delusions are deeply evidence-resistant. Patients with delusions are unmoved by evidence that's in direct conflict with that delusion. Often responding to such evidence by offering obvious and strange Confabulations. As a consequence, the standard view is that delusions are not evidence-responsive. People don't always respond to delusions, even if good evidence is presented against them. It's a, actually illustrated in a, a syndrome called uh, Cotard syndrome. It's a very rare syndrome where people actually believe that they're dead or that part of their body is somehow decomposing. And are several of these cases throughout history. In 1996, there was a man uh, who was in a motorcycle accident and you know, he recovered and was fine, but for whatever reason he believed that he died in that motorcycle accident. And nobody could convince him otherwise. He thought he was dead. Uh, his family moved from Edinburgh to South Africa and it was a lot hotter in South Africa, so he used that as evidence that he was in hell because it was so hot there. 2012, a uh, Japanese doctor... Uh, encountered a 69-year-old patient who said to one of the doctors, I guess I'm dead. What do you think about that? Well, they tried to present him with evidence that he wasn't dead. They said, could a dead man actually speak? And he acknowledged that that wasn't logical. But still he held on to that belief. It took about a year before he realized that he wasn't really dead, but he still held on to the belief that at one point he was dead. In that moment he was dead, and now he was back alive again. Belgian doctors treated a 46-year-old woman who claimed to have not eaten or gone to the bathroom or slept in years. She explained that all of her organs had rotted, that she had no blood, and that doctors who were measuring her blood pressure and vital signs were deceiving her because her heart didn't actually beat. Perhaps the most interesting and disturbing story. Uh, In 2005, Iranian doctors encountered a 32-year-old man who believed that he was dead and that he had been turned into a dog. The same fate, he said, happened to his wife, and his children had died also, and they had turned into sheep. And he held on to this belief no matter what evidence was brought against him. He said that his relatives had tried to poison him, and yet he was able to survive because God protected him. You know, we think about these stories, you know, you think about someone who believes that they're dead, and there's no evidence to back that up, and, you know, people try to convince them they're not dead, and yet they hold on to that belief so firmly, you know, and we think about that, and it's crazy to us. It's silly that someone would believe that they're dead when they're alive, but I think we often do something similar when it comes to God's word. Sometimes we believe lies, we believe things that are not true, even when we have evidence to the contrary. I think that's what happens here in this passage. Sometimes we have the temptation to believe things that maybe we want to be true, or maybe that we fear to be true, rather than what is true, what God has said. We see this in the story, the king of of Israel, Ahab, has been at peace with the king of Syria, Uh, But this strategic land, the land of Ramoth-Gilead, is controlled by Syria. And so King Ahab goes to Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah. Uh, Israel and Judah are separated at this time. And so he comes to the king of Judah, Jehoshaphat, and he says, will you go up with me so we can take this land back? Now Jehoshaphat is open to it. He says, my men are as your men. I'm willing to go up, but I need to hear the word of the Lord. Let's hear from the prophets. Let's see if this is from God, if this is going to actually happen. And so uh, Ahab decides to bring these prophets forward. He brings 400 prophets. Now, they may not have been actually prophets of the Lord. They may have actually been prophets of Asherah or Baal. But he brings these prophets forward and he says, what should we do? Should we we go and attack uh, Ramoth Gilead? And all the prophets in one accord say, yes, go attack them. Go attack him, and God is going to give this land into your hands. Now, Jehoshaphat seems like he was someone who really followed God a lot more than Ahab. He knows something's up. And he says, is there someone else that we can listen to? Is there someone else who speaks a word from the Lord? We don't know exactly what set him off to know that, that there was something up. But he said, is there anybody else? And Ahab said, there's one prophet. His name is Micaiah, but I hate him. He always prophesies evil towards me. He never says anything good about me. And so he didn't want to hear from Ahab, but Jehoshaphat wants to hear from him. And so they send messengers to Micaiah, and they say, what's going to happen? Like, should, should he go up? And eventually Micaiah says, if he goes up, he's going to die. If he goes into this battle, Ahab is going to be killed. And remarkably, even after uh, Ahab had encountered the Lord in several previous episodes that we looked at, for whatever reason, he doesn't believe that it's going to happen. He believes that he can test fate somehow. And we see just after the passage that we read, he goes up into battle, and he ends up dying in battle. And he reacts strongly against the truth. One of the other prophets, Zedekiah, comes up and strikes Micaiah in the face and says, Why do you think the word of the Lord has come to you and not to me? Ahab declares for him to be put in prison, to be fed meager rations. I think as we look at this story, I think we see three ways that sometimes we fail to hear the voice of the Lord, that we fail to hear and obey what God has said. The first way that we do that is by selective Scripture intake. About 200 years ago, uh, our third president, Thomas Jefferson, Uh, endeavored to create his own Bible. It was called The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. And what he did did was he took a razor blade and he went through the Bible and any passage that happened to stick out to him that he thought was worthwhile or encouraging, he would cut that out. And then he would paste it in a new book. He took out anything that was hard to believe, anything like a miracle, or he even took out the resurrection. But he found what he thought was useful and put it together in an 84-page book. That was his Bible. Now, again, that was him. That was kind of an extreme thing. But I think sometimes we do something similar in our culture. Uh, I was reading an article from the Washington Post, and uh, this man named Peter Manzu said this about Jefferson's Bible. He said, There's been a new Jefferson Bible for every generation since its rediscovery. It is a book whose relevance has been continually remade and renewed much like the man who made it, illuminating both the third president's philosophy and changing public opinion on the place of religion in American life. It's a text that inspires more questions than it answers. I think Manzu is right. I think each generation in our culture, even each individual, uh, we tend to pick out what passages of Scripture we think are important, and those that we don't see as relevant or important, we just kind of ignore it's kind of like my son, uh, one of his favorite shows is it's called Trash Truck. And it's about, if you have kids, you probably know what I'm talking about, but it's this uh, kind of lifelike trash truck, and there's a little boy, and they interact. And there's several different episodes and seasons of that, uh, of that show, but he only ever wants to watch one, and it's called Beach Day. And what he'll say is, I want to watch a boy playing in the sand. And so we watch that over over and over and over and over. That's the only one he wants to watch. You know, and he just, is. there's a lot of other things he'd probably be interested in in that show, but he just focuses on that one single episode. And I think we do the same thing when it comes to God's Word. You know, we have our favorite passages. There's nothing wrong with that, of course. You know, we have passages like Philippians 4, 5 to 6 about not being anxious. We have. Uh, scriptures like Romans 8 about the love of Christ. Those are great passages. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. You know, we have these passages that we go to, but sometimes what we do is we only focus on those passages. You know, whatever we spend time in God's word, we just go to our favorite passages. And oftentimes those favorite passages are passages that just kind of encourage us and, and comfort our hearts. And again, that's not, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with being encouraged and nothing wrong to have favorite passages, but we can't just stay there. Sometimes the word of the Lord needs to convict us. Sometimes it needs to challenge us. Sometimes it needs to break us. And so we need to see the whole depth of what God is trying to communicate, not just the passages that make us feel feel warm and fuzzy inside. Another thing we can do uh, is we can make the word of God say what we want it to say. Look at what the messengers of Ahab say to Micaiah. They say, behold, the word of the prophets are with one accord, are favorable to the king. Let your word be like the word of one of them and speak favorably. In other words, what Ahab wants is he wants to go up and attack Ramoth Gilead. That's his goal. He doesn't care what God says. And so he, he instructs his messengers, all right, tell him to give the king a favorable word. Tell him what he wants to hear. Tell him it's okay to go up and attack it. Tell him there's going to be victory. That's all he cares about. He wants to attack Ramoth Gilead, end the story. He doesn't care what God has to say. And sometimes we approach God's word like that. It's like we're coming and we're asking for God's input when we've already made up our mind. We already know what we think. We already know what we're going to do. We're just looking for God to confirm what we're going to do. That's not how God works. Look at how Micaiah responds. He says, As the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. The word of the Lord isn't subject to man's opinion, and Micaiah recognizes that. And the other prophets, it seems, they just simply want to appease the king. They want to tell him what he wants to hear. But when we hear God's word, sometimes he tells us things we don't want to hear, sometimes he tells us we need to change. Sometimes he tells us, you're the man, you're the woman who's the problem in this situation. 2 Timothy 3, 16-17 says this, All scripture is God-breathed, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Bible is God-breathed. It's the very word of God. And it's different than any other book that we read. Let's say you read a self-help book. Self-help books could be helpful. It's in the title, in the genre. There's different ways of reading a self-help book. You might read it from cover to cover. You might just pick out a couple chapters that happen to strike your interest. You might only read those chapters. And you, know, you may read parts of it that you agree with, parts of it that you don't agree with, and you maybe kind of interact with the, the arguments and the, and the advice that the author gives. And so you're in that kind of dialogue as you read that self-help book where you're just kind of critiquing and maybe taking a little bit here, a little bit there. Maybe I, I agree with this, I don't agree with that. And we're just kind of in that interplay as we're reading a book like that. But the Bible is different. We don't just read the Bible. The Bible reads us. We don't just read it. It's not that we just come to the Bible, look at, oh, what does this author have to say? Oh, what do I think about that? Maybe I could take something from it. No, we believe it is the Word of God, and so it reads us. The Holy Spirit shows us what's important. It's not just, oh yeah, this this might be important, that, uh, I don't need to worry about that. The Holy Spirit will lead us to what's important. The Bible is different than any other book that we might read. The Bible is authoritative, the Word of God, and we don't simply... Interact with the arguments of the Bible. The Bible often calls us to repentance, to change, and so we can't approach it like we approach any other book. And we need to approach the Word of God with an open mind. There's an episode of one of my favorite shows, The Office, called Performance Reviews, and uh, in this episode of The Office, Michael, the, the boss of Dunder Bifflin, really wants to date this woman named Jan. And Jan is just rebuffing his advances, and um, she leaves a message on his voicemail. And the message goes like this. She says, Michael, it's Jan. I guess I missed you. I'll uh, be there in the afternoon for performance reviews. I hope it's understood that 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 will be the only topic of discussion. See you soon. So it's a work relationship, and she's making clear, like, that's all we're talking about, right? I mean, it's pretty obvious. But he's not buying into that. He really wants a relationship with her, so he brings other employees into it, and he's, you know, going through and dissecting that message, and he says, oh, she said, I guess I missed you. That means she misses me. She must miss me. But then she goes on, and she says, well, I guess it's understood that will be the only topic of discussion. And he says, well... Those are only words. That doesn't mean anything. You know, and he takes a message that clearly means one thing and turns it around and makes it mean something completely different. And I think we can do the same thing when it comes to God's word. We take uh, not what the author and what God intends in the scripture. We can take our own suppositions into a text and make it mean what we want it to mean. We could take that which is clear and unequivocal and twist it to fit what we want to be true i know the bible says to be anxious for nothing but it certainly wasn't talking about my situation i have a lot of things i got to worry about do you do you know when paul wrote that he wrote that as he was in prison and he was being threatened his life was being threatened he thought he was going to die he had some things to worry about I know the Bible says don't gossip, but it's a true thing. I mean, it actually happened. I'm not making up stuff. Well, that doesn't change the heart. That takes delight in the misfall of others. No, the Bible says that uh, that God says to trust in the Lord with all of your heart, but I have to figure this out. I have to take control of this situation. Nobody else is. I'll admit that's something I struggle with. Want to take control of a situation? God says, "Give it over to Him." Know that God says that sex is uh, uh, refined to marriage between one man and one woman, a covenantal relationship. But we love each other. That's all that matters. See, the question is, how do we approach God's word? How do we approach God's word? Do we approach God's word with this expectation, uh, like the messengers of Ahab? Lord, give me a favorable answer. Lord, this is my path and I want you to confirm it. If if that's our goal, that's how we approach God's word, he's not going to speak to us. We're not going to hear the word of the Lord. We need to approach God's word with an openness and say, God, tell me what I need to do. Tell me what I need to know. Tell me what I need to hear in this situation. Tell me how I have to change. God, I'm yours. Speak to me through your word. I don't want to go down a path apart from you. I want to follow you with all of my heart. There's a big difference there in how we approach God's word if we approach it with an open heart. Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, put it this way. When you read God's word, you must constantly be saying to yourself, it's talking to me and about me. It's talking to me and about me. So that's the first way that we can sometimes fail to hear the word of the Lord by selective scripture reading. Only focusing on certain passages or coming to the text with presuppositions of just trying to get God to confirm what we want to do. The second way we can do that is by selective counsel. Ahab chooses counselors that he knows are going to give him a favorable answer. He says, I don't want to hear from Micaiah. I hate him. I hate him. He only prophesies evil towards me, so I don't want to hear from him whatsoever. When I was first planning this church, um, there was no church governance, and so one of the things I had to do is have a church board to kind of provide accountability for myself and for the financial aspects of the church and, and, and all that stuff. And so I was thinking, like, who do I put on this board? And uh, one piece of advice that kind of has stuck with me is I was told, don't put all yes men on your board. In other words, you don't want people who are just going to go along with everything that you say. Of course, you don't want people who are just difficult to be difficult, but you want people who are going to speak the truth to you, who aren't just going to go along with whatever you say, who aren't afraid to, to say you're wrong, you're going the wrong direction. It's a a huge problem in churches, it's a huge problem in businesses, in government especially, especially when money and donations are involved and like, you know, different uh, political figures maybe are getting money from certain people and then they don't want to offend this person or that person. It gets to a place where sometimes the person on top isn't hearing any truth. They're just hearing what they want to hear. And I think that can happen with all of us if we surround ourselves with yes men or yes women. People who are just going to affirm what we're doing, affirm what we're uh, believing. Gordon McDonald shares this story. He says, One time, 20 or so years ago, I was in Japan on a speaking tour with a close personal friend. He was a number of years older than I was. As we walked down the street in Yokohama, Japan, the name of a common friend came up. And I said something unkind about that person. It was sarcastic, it was cynical, it was a put down. My older friend stopped, turned, and faced me until his face was right in front of mine. With deep, slow words, he said, Gordon, a man who says he loves God, would not say a thing like that about a friend. He could have put a knife in my ribs, and the pain would not have been any less. He did what a prophet does. Did you know something? There have been 10,000 times in the last 20 years that I have been saved from making a jerk of myself. When I have been tempted to say something unkind about a brother or sister, I hear my friend's voice say, Gordon, a man who says he loves God would not speak in such a way about a friend. Prophets do that. They remind us of the truth and where we're falling short. If you avoid prophets, and a lot of people do, you do so at the peril of your own spiritual journey. You and I need prophets. We need people in our life who are going to speak the truth to us. Who are going to say, you're going the wrong direction. See, if we have friends in our life who are afraid to speak the truth to us, they're not truly our friends. If they're afraid to, truth, to speak the truth to us, they don't truly love us. And so we need to make sure we surround ourselves with people who will speak the truth in our lives. People who care enough to rebuke us. I mean, it takes a lot more love to correct someone, to call someone out, call your friend out on something, than it just does just to flatter someone. Proverbs 27, 6 says this: Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. And so, as believers, we need to make sure that we just don't get in our old little echo chamber, that we just surround ourselves with people who are just going to echo what we say back to us. They're just going to say, Oh, yeah, you're doing great. Don't change. We need people who are open and honest, who are going to encourage us, who are going to strengthen us, but also, when necessary, they're going to call us out and say, You need to change. You need to turn around from where you're going because you're headed for destruction. We need those people in our lives. So the final, and the final way that uh, we sometimes rebel against the truth uh, or fail to listen to the word of God is by violence against the truth. And the text says that there's another prophet against Zedekiah. He comes up and strikes Micaiah in the face. He says, how, how dare you say this? I mean, I'm saying, I received the word Lord. How dare you say that you received a different word from the Lord? And then Ahab again goes and throws him in prison, uh, says, just feed him meager rations until I come back. And this is perhaps the worst way that we can fail to listen to the word of God. You know, when we hear the word of the God, especially things that we don't want to hear, sometimes we get defensive. Especially if it's someone else who's, who's speaking the truth to us, Sometimes we get defensive. We don't want to hear it. Sometimes we can lash out in violence against that person. Throughout the history of humanity, uh, people have lashed out, exhibited violence against people who speak the truth. Whether it's in science, you know, people who were kind of visionaries in their field that maybe said things that were opposed to the prevailing wisdom, or in religious matters. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 23, 37 as he was contemplating his journey to Jerusalem where he would eventually die. He said, oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Jesus himself is going to experience violence, violence in his own life. The same crowd who rejoiced as he entered into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, just a few days later, are going to cry out, Crucify him. Crucify him. They put him to death because he spoke the truth. Because he spoke the words of the Lord. When people reject the truth. They often exhibit violence against the truth giver. And as believers, we need to make sure that we're open to correction we're open to other people's rebuke, open to the rebuke of God. When God speaks, we listen, we obey. So again, three things in this passage, three ways we fail to listen to the word of the Lord. Uh, sometimes we focus on one aspect of the word of the Lord, selective scripture intake. Sometimes we only put people around us who are gonna confirm what we, have to, what, what we think and what we're doing. And sometimes we even react violently against the truth. We need to be open to the word of the Lord, listening for God's voice, listening to him as we look at God's word, as we're interacting with people around us, looking for him even in the ordinary things of life. A lady by the name of Dana uh, Vishneski, and she tells a story uh, that goes something like this. There was a Native American who went to Times Square, first time in Times Square, and he went with a friend. And uh, as they're in Times Square, there's, The hustle and bustle of everything happening. There's music, there's cars, there's taxis, there's people talking, all different sorts of things happening. And this Native American says, I hear a cricket. His friend says, There's no way you hear a cricket. Listen to all this noise. Listen to all the music. Listen to all these cars. Listen to all the people walking to and fro. There's no way you hear a cricket. He says, I hear a cricket. A few minutes later, he walks over to this big cylinder uh, planter with some flowers in it, and sure enough, he looks, there's a cricket in there. His friend is amazed. He's like, you have to have a superhuman ability. I mean, how could you hear a cricket amidst all of this noise? I mean, there's so much going on. The Native American says, no, you could actually do that. You could listen. You could hear the sound of the cricket. His friend didn't buy it. He said, no, there's no way I could do that. I don't have hearing that that's that's that good. The Native American went on and explained, well, the thing is, you hear what's important to you. So he said, let me show you something. He took some change out of his pocket, dropped the change on the ground. And he dropped the change on the ground. He looked and he saw that dozens and dozens of people, even from far away, looked to see if their change had fallen on the ground. He said, you listen to, you hear what's important to you. The same thing is true with God's word. If God's word is important to us, we're going to listen. We're going to listen to all that God says. Not just our favorite passages, although they're good and helpful. We're going to listen to all that he has to say. We're going to put people around us who maybe sometimes are going to call us out. They're going to say, you're going the wrong way. And we're going to make sure we're open to correction. Saying, God, what do you have to say to me? What do you want me to believe? What do you want me to do? How would you have me live my life? It's how we're open to the word of the Lord. And if it's important to us, we'll hear it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word spoken to us. We thank you that you are the word, the one who came to show us what God is like, the one who came to redeem us from the brokenness of sin. Lord, as the people of God, help us to hear your word. Not just what we want to hear. Not just the voice of our fears. Not the voice of of the enemy who seeks to destroy us. Help us to hear your truth. Help us to hear your words. Because we know that in you are found all the words of life. And in you is life everlasting. Lord, help us to hold on to your word and truth no matter what we face. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.